So if you are just joining us this morning, or if you're new to our study, here's what we're doing. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'll give a little bit of background, I'll get you caught up, and then you'll be, pre, uh, be prepared for our study this morning. So before we do that, I, I just want to answer a couple of questions that came up as a result of last week's study. So last week we were in chapter 11, and we looked at a fragment from a group of documents called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are uh, the most important archaeological discovery of the modern era, and they were discovered back in 1947 in a cave in an area called Qumran, which is by the Dead Sea. And it's a collection of 900-plus manuscripts that date back all the way to, uh, to about 250 B.C. So some of the questions that came up, in fact, one in particular was a great question. The Bible that, that, that I like to use, the translation, uh, translation that I like to use, is the 2011 New International Version. And one of the reasons why I like that is because a lot of the Dead Sea Scroll fragments are in this text. And more and more, Bible translators are putting the Dead Sea Scroll fragments into revised translations as they come out. But one of the questions I got was, well, this is a little bit confusing. Are we adding to God's word by doing that? So I just wanted to address that quickly this morning. Short answer, no. No. Because what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, at least a portion of those scrolls, those are our oldest copies of God's Word. That is our Bible. That's our oldest Bible. So we're not adding anything to Scripture by putting those fragments back into the text that we have. We're simply recovering some of those. All right? So the Dead Sea Scrolls are our oldest copies of the Old Testament. And I think that this is a a tremendous um, testimony to God's preservation of his word. So those manuscripts were hidden in those caves, uh, 11 caves. In fact, a new one was discovered just recently, 12 caves, uh, for about 2,000 years. And when we open up our Bibles today and we compare these 2,000-year-old documents with what we have, it's the same. It's the same. So there are just a couple of little instances where... Some parts of the text were lost, but now they've been restored. And that's God preserving his word for his people. Amen? Amen. All right, I just wanted to clarify that this morning. So let's recap last week. Last week was chapter 11. And originally the title of that was The Only Good Thing King Saul Ever Did. Which wasn't nice. So we changed the title to Saul's Finest Hour. Okay? Saul does one thing that's awesome, and it's recorded for us in Scripture, and then starting this week, now we have this downward trajectory, and things start to go terribly, terribly bad. But last week, he got it right. His people were being oppressed by a foreign king, he rallied the troops, he defeated the enemy, and he gave God the glory. Yes, exactly right. That's what you're supposed to do as the king of Israel, Saul. You nailed it. Excellent job. Today's going to look a little bit different. Now, we're not going to be in chapter 12 this morning. We're skipping over chapter 12. Uh, But what chapter 12 is, is Samuel the prophet giving his farewell address to the people of God. Samuel the prophet giving his farewell address to the people of God. You can read that on your own this week. It's a great chapter. But I just want to highlight one verse from that chapter as we begin our study this morning, A Tale of Two Men. 
That'll be explained in just a moment. Here's this verse from the end of chapter 12. In fact, it's verses 24 and 25. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that's okay. We're going to have a lot of text on the screen because we're covering a lot of text. You can also follow along in your copy of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, it says this. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. This is the prophet addressing the people. Consider what great things He's done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. For those of you who have been a part of this study since the beginning... These two verses sound a whole lot like Deuteronomy 28, right? Deuteronomy 28. If you're new to our study or you're not familiar with Deuteronomy 28, what that is is a rehearsal of God's covenant blessings with the people. He says this, if you listen to the voice of God and obey, you will live and prosper. If you disobey or disregard the voice of God, you will die miserably. Exactly right. So the prophet issues the same warning as he is uh, about to leave office and the king is taking office. All right? Now, before we dig into chapter 13 this morning, let's just briefly rehearse the person of Saul. And if, also, if you're new this morning, this will catch you up. Saul was a Benjamite. That's probably really weird if you haven't been here. So... <laughs> The tribe of Benjamin was the most hated among all of the tribes. In fact, it was very nearly eradicated earlier in Israel's history. So, he's from that tribe. He's tall, which, as we see in the Old Testament, the only people who are noted for their height are enemies of Israel. Never an Israelite. Saul is the only Israelite singled out for his height. He's good-looking, and as we saw, too, people who are singled out for their beauty either fail miserably or lead very difficult lives. And, as we saw two weeks ago, Saul is characterized as a man of fear. So again I ask you, are things going to go well for the people of God, or poorly? All signs point to poorly. Alright, let's dig into the text together. So here's what's happening in chapter 13. In fact, chapters 13 and 14, where we're going to be today, uh, these are war scenes. Here come the Philistines. They're going to be attacking the Israelites. This is what we see in the text. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Chapter 13, verse 5. The text says this. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers. If that doesn't make sense to you, there's two people per chariot. One drives, the other fights. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's not good. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beit Aven. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and the pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilgal. Up here it says Gilead. All right. Not good. So here come the Philistines, and they amass this enormous army. So the response from Israel's army 
is what? One of boldness or one of fear? Fear. They're reflecting the disposition of their leader. They see that the situation is critical, and they run and hide. Okay, now keep this verse in mind. Keep these verses in mind, because it's going to come up two other times in our text today. The Israelites get scared, and they run and hide. Let's pick it up here in the middle of verse 7. Let's keep going. However, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were bold and powerful. They were quaking with fear. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel the prophet, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he was finishing making that offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. Okay. (laughs) This is not good. So here we go. The text says... Um, again, in verse 7, that the soldiers are quaking with fear. They see the lack of confidence in their leader, so, consequently, they are not confident. If your king doesn't think that he can beat the enemy, why should you think that you're going to win, right? So what's the natural response? Fear. Now, it should be trust in the Lord. We've seen him deliver and save our people and our army miraculously many times, but it's not. The king's scared, so I'm running. He thinks we're going to lose. We're probably going to lose. He's got more intelligence than we do. He's got more insight into the battle than we do. Let's get out of here. Here come the Philistines. So they are literally quaking with fear. But Saul is waiting for the prophet. Remember, back in chapter 10, the prophet Samuel tells Saul, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go down to Gilgal, and you need to wait for me. Wait seven days. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about this. What was the key word there? Wait. Wait seven days. Don't do anything until I show up. Wait, wait, wait seven days. That was back in chapter 10. So here we are. The week is up, and the king is waiting for the prophet. But he's slow in coming. He's not there yet. So Saul looks around. He sees the desperate situation. The men are beginning to scatter. So he says, I'm just going to make the offering. Is he at all qualified to offer sacrifices to the Lord. No. Only one group of people gets to do that. God appointed the Levites, the tribe of Levi, to offer sacrifices. Is Saul from that tribe? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Just wanted to hear it again. That's great. So he offers the sacrifice, showing himself to be a spiritual rebel. And then the prophet comes. Now here's why this is key. Saul is rejecting divine revelation. God very clearly says who can and who cannot offer the sacrifices. The Levites get to. That's it. God sets standards for how he's going to be worshipped. We have to worship according to those means. We don't just get to make stuff up. So he very clearly reveals how he's to be worshipped and who can do it. And Saul rebels against divine revelation. And here's why this is so hazardous. The people of Israel lived and died by God's revelation. 
They had to have God's revelation. Saul is rejecting that revelation out of fear in order to do what he wants to do. So here comes the prophet, Samuel. And Saul goes out to greet him. What did you think was going to happen, guy? You go out to meet the prophet who told you to wait and you just did his job for him? Verse 11. Let me catch us up on the screen here. Samuel says, What have you done? What have you done? Here's classic Saul. Well, I saw that the men were scattering and and that you didn't come at the set time and and the Philistines, they were assembling at Michmash and I thought, okay, well now the Philistines are going to go down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Nice job, Saul. Way to completely shirk responsibility here. So he blames three different people groups. People groups. Well, it was the army's fault. Well, and Samuel, it was also your fault. Oh, and it's also the Philistines' fault. So I had to do it. I just had to sin. It's not going to fly. But what we're going to see from Israel's leader, their first king, Saul, throughout his, his reign, is that he's constantly blaming other people for his sin. The only time he attaches himself to the sin here is by saying that he had to do it in order to seek God's favor before going into battle. I had to sin. Okay, so by sinning, you're seeking God's favor? Does it sound twisted and and messed up to anybody else in the room? Here's what the soldiers thought. You know, before they go into battle, they want to make sure that they have God's blessing. So what they would do is offer sacrifices to make sure that they are ritually pure. So one... We want to be right before God, just just so that he will bless us in battle. But two, if we die, we want to know that we died by being right with God. So that was the point of offering sacrifices beforehand. But the king doesn't get to do that. The priest does. The prophet does. So here's the response. Verse 13. Samuel says, You've done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command, the revealed will of the Lord your God. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's. lost the kingdom, man. You're going to be king for a little bit. It's not going to take it away from you right away. It's coming. The end is in sight. There's this phrase in there that we tend to latch on to. Let's talk about that for a minute. A man after God's own heart. Okay, so spoiler alert, we're talking about David, all right? We're going to meet David next week. He's called a man after God's own heart. And we tend to put a lot of emphasis, a lot of stock into that phrase. Here's what that is referring to. What has Saul been previously? A king like, we know the phrase, a king like all the other nations have, right? That's what the people asked for. They said, we want a king like all the other nations have, and that meant one of two things. It meant both things. Number one, we want to have a king over us because everybody else has a king. But also, secondly, we want a king like all the other nations have. What kind of kings do they have? Bad ones, pagan ones, kings that don't know the Lord. That's what they got. They got a king like everybody else, and this king also doesn't know the Lord. 
That's what that phrase means. So this phrase, a man after God's own heart, is the exact opposite of that. In other words, this is going to be a man who knows God. This is going to be a man who does what God says in his revealed word. Are you tracking with me? So, yeah, David is the man, but this phrase is supposed to set him apart very specifically and very distinctly from King Saul. That's what this phrase means. All right. Israel goes to war. Saul uh, jumps the gun. He loses the kingdom. The rest of this chapter just gives a little bit of background as to what's going on. We're going to jump into chapter 14. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to 1 Samuel chapter 14. So the battle is about to break out in earnest. And all of a sudden, one of the soldiers, one of the generals is missing. In chapter 14, we get introduced to Saul's son, a man by the name of Jonathan. And Jonathan is a great man. At the beginning of our study, we looked at fatherhood in the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and fatherhood gets, gets bad press. There are not a lot of good fathers, and usually the sons of the great men in these books turn out very poorly. The single exception to that rule is Jonathan. His dad is a wretch. He does not know the Lord. He's a bad leader. He's a spiritual rebel. He's unfit to lead God's people. But somehow, Jonathan is phenomenal. And this is one of my favorite accounts in all of the Old Testament. We're going to dig into it here. So, Jonathan is missing. He doesn't tell his dad. He's going on a secret mission with his armor bearer. So he knows where there is a group of Philistines, an outpost of soldiers, and he's headed that way. Here's what the text says, beginning in verse 6. Follow along with me. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the post or the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Yeah, I know there's like a whole garrison over there, and there's only two of us, but God can save. He doesn't need a whole army. In fact, remember earlier in the book when he used a box to defeat the Philistines? He doesn't really need us. So don't worry about numbers. We got this. Let's go to that Philistine outpost. Let's fight. It's funny in here, the text, uh, in the text, he calls the Philistines the uncircumcised. Part of, uh, part of the Jewish identity was circumcision. If you don't know what that is, there's kids in here, you can talk to your parents later about that. But basically, that identified them as people of the covenant. So by calling somebody uncircumcised, you're saying they are outside of God's covenant blessings, okay? So this is what he's telling his guy. He says, we're going to head out, and we're going to go visit this Philistine outpost. Let's keep going. Verse 7. His armor bearer says this. He says, hey, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. That's good stuff. Verse 8. Jonathan says, come now. Come on. We will cross over toward them, and then we're going to let them see us. And if they say to us, Wait there until we come to you. We'll stay here. And we are not going to go up to them. No, I'm sorry. I got lost here. Let's pick that up again uh, in verse 9. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. Verse 10. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Ooh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, two guys going up against the Philistines. And Jonathan's got this crazy plan. 
He says, we are going to give up the element of surprise. They're up on a hill, we're down below. They have the strategic military position, we do not. So we're going to go to them, we're going to show ourselves to them. Okay, if they say, wait there, and we're going to come down to you, we're we're just going to wait here. But if they say, come up to us, we're going to climb this cliff and then go fight them. And unless you think this is like a hill, here's a picture of it. You're like, wow, that one seems really steep. That seems a little more manageable. Yeah, this was their cliff, that one. So probably right about there is where the Philistines were. They're going to climb, and look how small the road is below. That's high. So you're going to climb that with swords and weapons and not be tired and get to the top and go fight people? What kind of plan is this? But here's the other crazy part. He says, if they say, come up to us, that's going to be a sign from the Lord. Yeah, okay, Johnny. What about the first part? What if they don't say anything? You said we're going to wait here. You're fighting no matter what. Did you catch that in the text? He didn't say, if they say we're going to come down to you, we're going to run away and hide. No, we're just going to wait. Did you get his mentality here? This is fight or die. I was reminded of a story. 1519, a man by the name of Hernan Cortez and 600 Spanish conquistadors, along with 16 horses and 11 boats, went to this peninsula called Mexico. And on that peninsula, you had all sorts of people who had never been conquered. The Mayan civilization, the mighty Aztecs, the Incas. And nobody, after 600 years of trying, could conquer the peninsula. So here comes Cortez. He shows up. He's only got 600 men. Much larger armies have failed to get the gold and the silver and the precious stones that this land held. They could not defeat the inhabitants. He shows up with 600 men, and they didn't even have armor. They just had swords. So rather than just blitzing onto the peninsula and facing certain defeat, they stay on the beach. And he delivers a series of speeches to motivate and rally his guys. And his final speech is three words. Burn the boats. Burn the boats. There's no going back. You will either fight and win, or you will die. Burn the boats. Jonathan is a burn the boats kind of a guy. Let's see how it plays out. By the way, how amazing that his armor bearer is all in. Right? Man, you've got the covenant blessings of the Lord. You're an amazing leader. I'm going to go to war with this guy. Here's what happens. We'll pick it up in verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. Remember that from the previous chapter? So the fear of their leader caused the people to hide in holes, and that became a taunt among the Philistines. The Philistines are thinking, of course we're going to win. Look at their scaredy king. Look at these afraid people. So now it's a taunt. Here they come, out of the holes. Come on, guys. Verse 12. The men at the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us, and we will teach you a lesson. 
Here we go. Game on. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, just very matter-of-factly, climb up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. There's never like a, are you sure? They just go. Here's what the text says, verse 13. Jonathan climbs up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed behind and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. That's amazing! Right? So here's what's going on. They scale the cliff, and one of two things is happening. Either Jonathan just comes out slashing, and he, he delivers the initial wound, and the armor bearer comes behind with the spear or something and finishes off the job, or they're fighting back to back, and they're both just slashing. But either way, these two men take out 20 Philistines. So here's what happens. After that, panic strikes all of the Philistines, and they start to scatter. And word gets back to King Saul. It's like, well, who's gone? Who did this thing? And it turns out that it's Jonathan. So here's what happens next, and we're going to start wrapping this thing up. So follow along with me. Here's what the text says. Down in verse 18, jump down to verse 18. Saul says to Ahijah, and Ahijah is one of the priests, he says, Bring the ark of God. What happened the last time the ark of God was brought to battle? Right, think back to chapter 4. The priest died. The army was defeated. How about you stop bringing the ark to battle? So, there's this whole ceremony that's involved. You have to inquire of the Lord. Are you going to give us victory? Go get the ark of the covenant. Only certain people can carry it. So there's this whole bit of pomp and circumstance that goes along with this. Here's what Saul does. He says, withdraw your hand. No! You don't withdraw your hand. Part of this process is receiving divine revelation. Are you going to give us victory or are you not? But Saul, sensing that this was a strategic time to attack the Philistines, disregards God's revelation and tells the priest to stop. You don't tell the priest to stop. This guy is a spiritual rebel, and he's unfit to lead God's people. Here's what happens next. Verse 20. Saul and all his men, they assemble. They find the Philistines in total confusion. They're fighting each other. And then verse 21 is kind of cool. So the the Hebrews who had previously joined the Philistines and abandoned the Israelite army, they start fighting again for Israel. They see that victory is certain, and they turn on the Philistines. Isn't that cool? So you were taunting them previously, Philistines, and now they're defeating you. Text says, verses 22 and 23, when all those who had previously been hidden heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day because of Jonathan's decisive efforts, boldness, and faith. He turned the tide of the battle. So here's what happened. The very next verse. Contrast what we just read. Now the Israelites were in distress that day. But it says that they were celebrating. God saved them that day. They're in distress because of their king. So here's what Saul does. He says, all right, we're going to get after these guys. We're going to once and for all finally defeat the Philistines. So I'm going to set up an oath. Anyone who eats food before evening will be killed. 
Have you ever like gone for a run or participated in sports or had any kind of physical exertion and then you just ran out of fuel? Like, man, I gotta eat something. I need some water. I need some help. You need the calories, right? These guys are fighting for their lives and they're starving. They need to have like seized on some food and just eaten it and kept going. And now their king says, no, no more nourishment. No more replenishing your bodies. Complete calorie depletion. How are you expected to win? Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, till I avenge myself on my enemies. So Jonathan doesn't hear this. He's off, you know, fighting and actually defeating the Philistines. So the army enters into the forest, and when they get in there, there's bees everywhere, and they see all this honey. Well, the men know about Saul's rash oath, but Jonathan doesn't, so he takes his staff, he dips it in some of the honey, and he eats the honey. It's like, oh, yeah, this is great. That sugar just instantly gets in the bloodstream. Your energy is back. You're ready to go. And one of the men says, did you not hear what your dad said? Your dad put us all under a curse. He said, if we eat, then we're going to be killed. And check out verse 29, a very famous statement. Jonathan says, my father has made trouble for the country. So the last time this phrase, made trouble, was used, it was used in, let me get the reference right here, Joshua chapter 7, in reference to a man named Achan. Achan stole stuff during battle, and he and his entire family were killed for bringing trouble on Israel. Jonathan says the same thing of his dad. This troubler of the land, he has caused trouble for us. But nobody says anything. The soldiers love Jonathan. So here's what happens. We'll pick it up in verse 36, and this is where we'll end. Verse 36. Saul says, hey, let's keep pursuing the Philistines. We're going to plunder them. And the men say, hey, you're the king. Do whatever seems best to you. But the priest says, let's, let's check in with God first. Right? King, let's check with God first. What if he hasn't given us the victory? Let's just check. So Saul, okay, verse 37. All right, ask God. So Saul, Saul asks, okay, God, shall I go pursue the Philistines? Are you going to give them into my hand? But God doesn't answer him. God doesn't respond to the king. So Saul's ticked off. He says, okay, somebody has sinned. He doesn't think that perhaps it's his sin that's causing God to be silent. He's blaming other people, as is his habit. He says, somebody sinned. Let's figure out who it is. So they go through this whole rigmarole, and he makes another rash vow. He says, whoever sinned, we're going to kill, just like we killed Achan way back in the day even if it's my own son, Jonathan. Really? You're willing to kill your son? So they go through this whole process of figuring out who it was, and sure enough, it was Jonathan. So here's what happens, and this is where we'll finish up. Verse 43. Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan says, I tasted a little bit of honey with the end of my staff. Now I must die. This is a testimony to Jonathan's piety. So he realizes that his dad is a troubler of the land. And he realizes that his dad made a rash vow. But his dad still made that vow before the Lord. 
So Jonathan says, I got to honor it, Dad. You made it before God. I guess you kill me. So Saul says, verse 44, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. So what he's doing here is invoking curse language. He's saying, if I don't kill you, then God kills me. Verse 45, another amazing deliverance. But the men, the soldiers, said to Saul, are you kidding me? Should Saul, I'm sorry, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. They rescued Jonathan from his dad, and he was not put to death. And here's their point. None of this could have happened if not Jonathan had been acting for God. This deliverance was brought about by God, and now you're going to kill the one that he sent to deliver us? And this is where we see the tale of two men. You have the decline of Saul and the rise of Jonathan, even though the rise of Jonathan will be short-lived, as we'll see next week. Now, it's an easy thing for us, while we're studying the disqualification of Saul, to say something like, well, don't be like Saul, be a Jonathan. That's not the point. That's never the point. We don't hold up these men in Scripture, as, or even the women in Scripture, as these models of virtue to be followed. That's not what we do. We exalt Christ, amen? Christ is our example, and he is the one that we're to follow. And that's what we read this morning in the book of Ephesians, when Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children, and in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We submit ourselves to the Father. We submit ourselves to the word of God. Now, jumping back to the Old Testament... They didn't have the complete Bible. They had the law of God. And it's in these laws that God chose to reveal himself to his people. The law reflects the lawgiver. You want to know the heart of God? Read the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what the people have. So we see one man who did not submit himself to God's revelation and one man who did. We saw the outcome of both of those decisions. So my encouragement for you this morning is to submit yourself to the revelation of God. And we have that revelation. His name is Jesus. I want to encourage you to be open to how God is leading you as you read the word and as you hear the word preached. And I want to encourage you to submit yourselves to Christ. It's in doing that that we know the Father and that we make him known. If that's new to you, If you want to talk more about that, please come see me. We're going to close right now. That's my encouragement for you this morning. Submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us revelation. God, I thank you too for examples in the Old Testament of men who obeyed and, and even the men who disobeyed. God, we relate, I think, best with those who disobeyed because that's our fallen nature. But God, you gave us Christ so that we can obey. God, I pray for every person in this room that our hope and our trust would be in him. 
He is our only way to life, and he is our only way to you. God, thank you for loving us so much that you made a way for us to be right with you. You gave us the ultimate revelation of yourself, Jesus, who came to earth to take care of our sin problem. God, may we know him. That's our longing. God, help us as a family this morning, family here at 1BC, to submit ourselves to you and to your word. And God, if you're calling us to bold action, pray that you would make us a bold people. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, resurrected for us, Jesus. Amen.